Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It all started on a Sunday before the 4th of July. I was chasing a legend, a family legend, in fact. I live in a small town called Johnsonville in West Texas. My great-grandfather founded it, and legend has it that the money he used to do it came from his farm here. Don't believe me? Well, that water tower on our property clearly reads Johnsonville, and my name is Garrett Johnson. You do the math. The stories were pretty crazy, though. They say my great-grandfather was able to grow exotic things like bananas and coconuts in the rough Texas soil. And not only that, He had cantaloupes the size of beach balls, carrots as long as your arm, and if you believe the craziest parts, fly traps that could eat your dog if it made the mistake of coming too close. They also say that great-grandpa made a deal with the devil to get these things. But I guess if you got giant and man-eating vegetables and fruits, then adding the devil just seems a natural way to round things out. Everybody knows the old stories it being a small town and all, and growing up with that sort of thing had about the effect that you'd expect. Now, I didn't think that Grandpa made a deal with the devil, of course. Being his great-grandson meant that I had access to parts of the story that no one else got to see, like his diary. It's mostly agricultural tallies, and yes, he apparently grew bananas somehow, along with recipes for fertilizers that he'd concocted and even a nasty solution you could use to salt the earth so that nothing will grow. Like, kind of how they talk about in the Bible. Great-grandpa called it Addo 13. Addo being the name of Lot's wife according to the Jewish version of the story. She's the one that turned back to look at Sodom and got turned into a pillar of salt for her troubles. Great-grandpa had a sense of humor, you could say and he'd circled the name so that nobody could miss his little joke. He also had a mean streak, though, and I imagine that little recipe wasn't so funny for a lot of the other farmers. The last entry in his diary was the most interest to me, but it was very cryptic. It just mentioned that he'd found something called the seed, and it stops right there. The last pages looked like they were cut out, Anyway, it was because of these stories that I geared my education towards agricultural chemistry, the art of making things grow, essentially. These days, my father wasn't around, sharing a spot in the same cemetery where his father and my great-grandpa were buried. I was the eldest Johnson of a three-person clan. It was just me, my wife, and my son Joseph living in a beautiful southern colonial with a second-story balcony where our little family ate meals when the weather was right. In the Sunday, when everything started, I was outside of the house playing with some of the GPS features for two agricultural drones that I had acquired. Now, 
I don't know if you've ever used them, but it requires a pilot license. And if you're serious about farming, then they can't really be beat. You could get mapping of huge acreage areas to see where your crops are healthy or dying. And if you paid the big bucks, then you can carry all kinds of things to dump, spray, or otherwise distribute. I like to use them to spray my latest test compounds, and the GPS link meant I could predefine custom routes for my drones. Targeting precise rows and sections of crops with laser accuracy. Now, I hadn't been having a lot of luck with Great Grandpa's land, and was setting up a new route for my drones to try out my latest fertilizer experiments when my son came outside and joined me for a moment. He was tall thin and long-haired, dressed in his usual combination of blue jeans and a t-shirt that looked like a horror movie advertisement, which he says is for a band named Rock Gore, which should tell you that intelligence does not guarantee good taste in music. At the time, he had a triangle half-toast in his mouth and was looking at my GPS controller tablet with amusement. You're planting a big middle finger right around Spooky? Really? He asked between crunchy mouthfuls. I gave my son a huge grin. <laughs> well, what else are you going to use a $3,000 drone for? He laughed. Spooky's our scarecrow. He's the only one in town with a sombrero, and I like to test around him because he's easy to find and because nothing seems to grow there at all. The results of Great Grandpa's Addo 13 testing, I reckoned. Joe looked down at the ground for a moment and spoke, breaking me out of my reveries. Hey, I was thinking about making some rockets and Roman candles for Thursday. You mind if I use the lab? Now I have a large barn that I've converted into my very own mad scientist lab. It's my man cave, I guess you could say. And it even has a newly installed custom sunroof, which my agri drones can open up remotely and land inside. Joe loves it, and I think sometimes he hangs out there more than I do. You blow your damn fingers off, I told him. Why don't you stick to sparklers? Come on, Dad. Sparklers are just for kids. Strontium for red color, magnesium for white. And don't miss breakfast, hotshot. Toast doesn't count, I said. Joe threw his hands down in frustration and said, Yeah, yeah, I got your toast before storming his way over to the barn. He slammed the double doors behind him in perfect angry teen form. With the drones set on their amusing path for fertilizing and seeding, I went into the house to see what was for breakfast. Passing through the living room, I smelled something heavenly coming from the kitchen. I could make out bacon grease, onions, fried eggs, and peppers. Jenny, my wife, was making huevos rancheros, she smiled as I entered the kitchen and pointed at a cardboard box on the kitchen table. Can you move that to the floor and have a seat? I've got something you're going to like, and I'll tell you after breakfast. A present, huh? Well, I like presents, I said, walking over and setting the box on the floor next to me. Jenny brought over my plate first, loaded up with the eggs and beans and Jenny's culinary love and then brought over a plate for herself and Joseph. Never one to miss a meal, Joe showed up just as his plate hit the table. Jenny sat down and lit up a joint. Now, 
I know what you're thinking, but although my Jenny looks just as slim and trim as she did the first day we met, her only respectful nod to age being a little salt and pepper on her now short head of hair, she'd been fighting cancer for the last three years. Breast cancer, to be specific. She's winning, mind you, but the marijuana has been a welcome part of it. She says that it helps her to eat, and when you have as much land as we do, it's not hard to hide a patch or three of wacky tobacco, and I figured what the law doesn't know can't hurt them. Or us. Besides, I'd do anything for that woman. Joseph had already started on his breakfast, shoveling beans and eggs into his mouth like it was a contest, and Jenny told me to go ahead and start on mine, before it gets cold, promising to catch up. After we'd eaten, she smiled at me and said, I found some pages from your grandpa's diary. God, I wish she'd never found them. Those three sheets of paper were the end of everything. I just didn't know it yet. In two of them, he described how he found this seed and how it made everything grow. Hell, I thought those tallies were some kind of joke, but he really grew bananas in Texas. Bananas. The third sheet was a map with a crudely drawn well on it. Looks like you boys are going on a treasure hunt, Jenny said, grinning. I'll pack you both some lunches and you two figure out what kind of gear you'll need so you could check it out while it's still daylight. Joseph and I looked at each other. I'll never forget the feeling. For a moment, we were like two kids about to dig up a pirate treasure. We loaded up a pack with some rope, two flashlights, and the two brown bag lunches that Jenny had packed for us. And after consulting an aerial map of our property we were able to use the map. After a bit of walking and clowning around, Joe spotted the well we were looking for. It wasn't anything special, just a ring of stone with a round wooden cover on the top of it. I pulled it off, wiping some dust from it onto my pants, and we both looked down. It just looked like any other well. Joe had picked up a rock and lobbed it down, it splashed, and I looked at Joseph nervously as I thought about the broken back I'd be explaining at the hospital later. I'll go first, Dad, he said. You could lower me down. That way we aren't risking, you know, breaking the rope. Hey, I exclaimed, although secretly relieved. That paracord we packed is rated for 1,200 pounds, Weisenheimer. Joseph snickered and continued. Okay, okay, but... I really should go first. In for a penny, in for a pound, I thought. I took some rope out of the sack and began knotting it every few feet before securing it to a nearby tree. It was knotty and ugly, but it looked like it would hold. Joseph tied the other end of the rope to himself and knotted it through his belt for extra security, hopping up on the well's edge, dangling his feet into the darkness. Hey, I began. Come on, Dad, let's see what's inside. I lowered Joseph down into the darkness until he asked me to stop. Give me a few feet of slack on the count of three, he said. I said okay, and then he did the damnedest thing. 
Kicking against the wall, he pushed himself outward a little before I released a few feet of rope, and the result was Joseph going out, down, and then swinging inside of the well. Come on down, he said. You can't see, but there's a hole. I looped a little rope in my hand after giving a test pole on it to make sure it was firm on that tree, and began lowering myself down. About 15 feet down, I saw Joe behind me, framed in an oval opening of the well that I hadn't seen from above. I kicked against the side of the well, and he grabbed me, pulling me into the tunnel. Now, I'm not sure what I expected, but what I saw was amazing. The tunnel was carved from solid rock, with steps going down into the darkness. Joe, not bothering to get one of the flashlights, was lighting our way with a mobile phone, and after descending what felt like many minutes, we came to a large, open cavern. Inside it was a Mayan steppe pyramid, but oddly enough, there was a rectangular entrance at the base, and instead of a central set of stairs to the top, there appeared to be inverted steps that went down inside of it. Even stranger, there was light coming from inside of it. Your turn to go first, said Joe, and this time, he was the one looking nervous. It's hard to be a coward in front of your son, so I walked down the steps into a large central chamber inside the pyramid. It was odd. The pyramid shape was the same inside, only inverted, creating a diamond shape in the interior that looked like it had been made with a giant Lego building block. The central portion of the pyramid was filled with black liquid, surrounding a central island, connected to the stairs by a thin stone bridge. On the central island, there was a knotted arrangement of live trees, leaves and all. Forests crooked and growing together into what looked like nothing more than a large living throne. Some sort of phosphorescent moss was growing all over the ceiling, glowing brightly enough that the flashlights we brought were pointless. Carved towards the top of the throne was the stark face of a man with a handlebar mustache. He was smiling. There was a quick flash of light and I jumped. Sorry, Dad, Joseph said. He had taken a picture. I felt sick to my stomach but proceeded down to the bridge because I had to. I'd seen what was on the throne. The seed. Oval shaped, the seed appeared to be a shiny black stone, lovingly polished. I think it was comprised of jet, and look back at it now, it makes sense. Jet is compressed wood after all. Anyway, to make a long story shorter, we went back home with the seed. It was getting dark as we walked back home, but we grabbed the spade and we planted it together, Joe and I. Now I know we should have let Jenny see it first, but we felt compelled, I guess you could say. We put it in front of my test patch, in front of Spooky. As the sky darkened, I noticed that the clouds had gathered and the light rain had begun. I saw a helicopter pass. The police liked to fly over farms most nights to see if anyone was growing anything that they shouldn't, but despite what the TV tells you, small patches of marijuana are pretty hard to see, especially grown with a few rows of short corn. 
It looked like the weather was driving them back to base, and the rain was officially picking up, upgraded from light drizzle to full-on cats and dogs. Hey, Joe, we better get inside. We raced each other back to the house, and we told Jenny our story over dinner. Meatloaf and mashed potatoes, which was my favorite. That night, I had a dream. I was walking through some of the wheat in the heavy rain, heading for the spot where we'd planted it. I saw Spooky on his crossed poles, situated in the center of a circular pit. As I watched, water began pooling from beside the pit and rushing into it, filling it quickly. Then there was an enormous splash of mud and water, and the seed came up again, cocooned at the base by sickly green tendrils and looking like a tulip bulb. The jet bulb began to melt downward, revealing the smiling face of the man I'd seen before in the carving. The rain cleared almost instantly, following the eruption of the seed, and in the moonlight, I could see it. Well, him. Clearly. It was a head. A living head. With the handlebar mustache and the skin with the complexion of a rotten olive, in dark contrast with its full red lips. It opened its eyes and smiled at me. Then it spoke in a voice that sounded both gravely yet childlike in its enthusiasm. Everything will grow, it said. Everything will grow. You will give me the first, and everything will grow. I woke up with the start, breathing heavily on my side of the bed, a warm wetness that was already starting to get colder, courtesy of central air conditioning, reminded me that it was just a dream. Jenny hadn't budged, and so I got out of bed, embarrassed, and changed my clothes. I decided to sleep on the couch and to explain my bedwetting in the morning. I woke up early the next morning and immediately went to check in on Joseph. Jenny was sleeping in. Joe wasn't in his room, but his computer was on, and I saw what was on it. The face, like one from my dreams, was attached to a Wikipedia entry. Curious, I gave it a cursory read. The text described it as a Mayan deity called Maximon. Some sort of fertility and agricultural god that became San Simon when the Catholics couldn't get the locals to stop worshipping him. They have a shrine to him in many churches, apparently, where he's wearing a hat and has a cigar in his mouth. The legends about him were contrary, some stating that he helps those in need, including criminals, but others say that he was a trickster spirit, made when some villagers in need of protections carved him from wood. When his mischief was too much, the villagers tore off his arms and legs to make him behave. What the hell? I said to myself. I thought about my dream, and then my panic for Joseph flooded back into me. Running downstairs and out of the front door, I started heading for Spooky with my heart in my stomach. It was like running in a dream again. The transformation of the farm was uncanny. Everywhere I'd planted, all the wheat, short corn, and even Jenny's personal garden seemed to have been swapped out with giant vegetation. 
Tomatoes the size of basketballs were attached to a vine, thick as my wrist, which circled a nearby tree. Carrot tops poked up like spikes set in a Vietnamese pit trap. Even the sunflowers were affected, ringed wide like yellow tires. I ran to the place where I planted the seed and saw something I'll never be able to unsee. In front of the scarecrow lay Joseph. His head was intact, but this was the only part of him which had not been stripped. A mix of torn flesh and riped organs were splayed on other side of him, and the seed, this living head, was perched on top of Joseph's ribcage. It supported itself with gelatinous legs made of the black liquid which had surrounded it from inside the temple. It had the effect like the head was trying to flow upwards but was being restricted by tar. It was wearing the scarecrow's sombrero when doing something to Joseph's bones. Joseph's ribcage and one of his arms now appeared to be made of jet, like the seed in its primal form. As I watched in horror, it retched and spit forth more of the black liquid, coating the remaining arm. It looked up at me and grinned. A black tendril shot up from its base to the scarecrow's post, and it began dragging the ribcage and the arms upward. They tinkled like chimes as they bounced up the pole. The scarecrow had been knocked off of the cross post, but as the head bounced to the top, it spit more of the black substance into the spine and secured the bones firmly to the post. The seed looked at me and the gelatinous portion of it began slithering down, entwining the bones of the arms, then the hands, and the fingers, forming a molted green musculature. It raised my son's arms wide on the post, as if mocking the crucifixion, and it spoke to me. You did not give me your first, so I took it. I took it, and I have punished you as well. His big lips formed a pout and then broke into a wide smile. I forgive you now. See? Everything grows. Without another word, he slithered down the post again and began working on the remaining bones. It's fashioning a body from my son, I thought dully. What happens when it can walk? Paralyzed by shock, I heard his words again in my mind. I have punished you as well. Jenny. Oh my god. It ignored me as I stumbled away, regaining some of my composure and my panic as I broke into a run straight for home. But I found my wife dead on the living room couch with an unfinished coffee in front of her, and her face frozen in a rictus of fear. The left side of her shirt was grotesquely swollen. I lifted it, and I wished to God I hadn't lifted it, but I did, and I saw what had happened. Everything had grown, including my wife's cancer. The doctor had gotten rid of most of it, but apparently what little was still there was enough to be susceptible to this perversion of life energy produced by the seed. Her chest was a heavy mass of red and yellow bubbles, dripping pus, 
My heart was still beating fast from the running, and all of it was suddenly too much. My chest felt like it was being assaulted with slivers and shards of glass, and I suddenly couldn't breathe. The heart attack didn't kill me, but I dreamt. Maximon sat on the throne similar to what I had seen in the temple, entwined in vines and leaves at the apex of the living cross that once was Spooky the Scarecrow's roost. My son's bones were now becoming clothed in black and green flesh that glistened like ebony and slime, though only the arms and half of his torso were currently sheathed in the stuff, leaving half of an exposed ribcage. Joe's ribcage. Whatever he was made of takes a long time to grow, it seems. Men from the neighboring farms were surrounding him, offering the first of their crops. Some had even brought infants, screaming and crying. Maximon was smiling with a cigar clamped between his teeth and a bottle of rum in his right hand. He took the cigar out of his mouth and drained the bottle in a mighty pull his bulging eyes looking down as the liquor ran out from the cavity at the base of his ribs. He cackled at the sight like it was the funniest thing he had ever seen. And finally, stopping with his hands holding his sides to shout hoarsely to the farmers, Everything will grow. They fell to their knees in supplication. As I watched in horror, the men rose up and took splashing steps into the black pool that surrounded the creature, carrying their offerings with them to an enormous bulb plant at Maximum's side. It opened up like a Venus flytrap, filled with teeth like darning needles and worse. In the center of the black mouth was my son's face, shaking and crying. As the plant began to chomp down the offerings, my son started screaming, and I think I would have lost my mind right then and there if I hadn't heard Jenny's voice at my side. You've got to stop him, Garrett. He can't come back by himself. If you stop him, he'll have to go back until some other fool plants him again, she said. I looked to my side and saw her. She looked young and healthy and uncorrupted again. With tears in my eyes, I blubbered. I'm so sorry, Jenny. I'm so sorry. And she silenced me by placing her hand on my arm. It was cold, though her smile was sad and warm. And as she spoke to me, she began slowly fading. It can't hurt me anymore, but it's hurting Joseph. And it's calling those men. This will happen if you don't stop it, Garrett. Stop it. Save our son. I woke up on the living room floor, feeling weak. My chest hurt like the time in my teens when I tried to cure a bad case of pneumonia with nothing but ibuprofen, until Jenny threatened to kick my ass if I didn't go to the hospital. I think she did the same thing that evening, coming back from that heart attack the way I did. I needed to get help if I was going to kill this thing and save whatever was left out there of my son. I tried the phone, but it was no good. And I guess with all the new and crazy vegetation spreading everything, the landlines must have been toasted. I didn't own a cell phone either. Jenny and I were old school and didn't truck with such things and 
and Joseph's phone would be impossible to get with that thing there. I grabbed the keys to my truck and went outside. I'd apparently spent a lot of time on that floor because it was nighttime already. I ran from my truck and stopped abruptly. It was coated in vines, and around a dozen watermelon-sized bulbs were protruding in various places all over the truck. As if they sensed my approach, a number of them opened up and began a frenzied snapping in my direction. Shit. What about my lab? I ran in and grabbed the flashlight out of one of the kitchen drawers that we kept for power emergencies. Running back out and keeping my distance from the truck, I shined a beam at the barn which housed all of my chemistry experiments. Vines were growing on it, and there were bulbs there as well. I got an idea. I ran upstairs to my bedroom to get my drone remote. The tablet worked like a phone, in that it used GPS. But it was proprietary and never designed for making phone calls. Calling wasn't what I wanted though. Running downstairs, I went into Joe's room and got the sack we used at the well, tossing the drone remote inside and going out with my flashlight. I ran to the side of the barn and had my first genuinely good luck. The ladder I'd propped up on the side of it when I had the sunroof installed was still in place. I'd forgotten to put it away. Instead, spending the rest of that evening landing and launching my drones through the new electric roof. I made my way inside the building and looked up, shining my flashlight to get a better view. Only one of the bulbs looked like it might have a chance to get me, and it was close to the top, but I figured I had to risk it. I started climbing the ladder slowly, hoping as I got closer to the thing that it wouldn't notice me, and I'd make it to the roof without being pushed off and getting a shattered spine for my troubles. As I crept up, nearing the top, the bulb remained still, seeming not to notice me, until it suddenly came to violent life and began thrashing about. The position of the bulb nudged the ladder slightly to the left, and in a panic, I stomped and scrambled and climbed, making it to the roof before the ladder flew backwards and landed with a clatter below. Shaking, I climbed the shingles to where the sunroof was installed, unslinging Joe's pack and pulling out the drone remote. I turned on the tablet and selected the icon for drone one. Below, in my lab, the machine responded, waking up from its sleep mode, and I selected the icon for manually opening the sunroof doors. The plexiglass panes slid immediately away from the center with a pneumatic hiss. It was about a 20-foot drop down to the floor, and while I had a rope in my pack, there was nothing to tie it to. Dangling my feet through the hole in the roof, I grimaced and pushed with my hands, hoping for the best. As I landed, my left leg hit first and I collapsed, shouting in a world of pain. I rubbed at my ankle, trying to feel if any bones were broken, and couldn't really tell one way or the other. I rose slowly, pushing myself to my feet, and while it hurt like hell, it appeared I'd gotten lucky again. I could at least limp on it. I had an idea how I could get some help to arrive and how to put them exactly where they needed to be, but no idea if it would be enough. I had to try, 
so I fetched Drone 1 and attached a module that I purchased to distribute seed. It was high capacity, but this baby had eight propellers. It could do some heavy lifting. I loaded it up with seeds from marijuana strains I've been working on for Jenny's cancer. I sent Drone 1 out to scatter those seeds in the middle finger pattern Joseph had caught me configuring. It had a certain justice to it, I think. With any luck, the mojo that freak was using on all the plants would do its thing, and maybe one of the helicopters would notice. The DEA and local police would be all over this place in a couple of days, maybe sooner if they figured I was preparing to get it sold during the fireworks show. Looking back, I regret that decision, but hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? After Drone 1 came back, I closed up the sunroof and started working on my backup plan. I had everything I needed, theoretically. I saw Great Grandpa's recipe book and also spied the pile of sparklers that Joseph had made for that 4th of July. An idea came to my mind. I began gathering every piece of steel wool that I had in the workshop and piling it up on a heat-resistant platform in my lab. I liberally doused it with some alcohol and began looking for the spot where I kept my batteries. I was going to need a lot of rust and a few other things for this to work. And just then, I heard a helicopter flying overhead, and with any luck, they'd just gotten the biggest middle finger in Johnsonville. I knew I had a chance now. The next day was a massacre. Fifteen men died. Three local cops and twelve DEA agents. I don't know what I'd expected them to accomplish with pistols. The DEA led the vanguard in an armored vehicle, bursting through the vine-covered gate into chaos. I watched it briefly on my tablet as the footage broadcast from Drone 1, only calling it back for my backup plan once it was obvious that I doomed the poor bastards. I loaded up Drone 1 and 2 with their payloads and sent them out, grabbing a blowtorch. I proceeded to cut open the barn doors so that I could limp over to this beast, severing one of the bulbs from its lifeline and kicking it away as it twitched and snapped in its death throes. If that thing in my test patch killed me, then fine. I didn't want to live anymore anyways. But if my plan worked... Staggering outside, I started limping, with a lit blowtorch in my hand and my drone tablet in my left. I was heading towards the scarecrow and a soon-to-be-very-angry Mayan god. Looking up, I saw my drones going to where I'd sent them. Drone 1 was already sprinkling its liquid payload on test patch, and Drone 2 was heading off for the Johnsonville water tower as I'd planned. Getting to Maximon proved to be easier than I thought. The bulbs in my path snapped a bit, but closed themselves tightly with a metallic shriek when burned long enough for me to limp past as fast as I could. When I made it to the point I'd marked on my GPS synchronized map, I stopped at what I hoped was the very edge of the location that I'd ordered the drone to soak. And I knelt down, pushing the blowtorch slowly forward, the grass blackening in a thin line in front of the torch. Maximon saw me and cocked his head suspiciously. Then a scowl of pure rage crossed his features. 
Beside him, the plant which housed my son's head opened its maw and began snapping its jaws. With Joseph crying and screaming, Daddy, over and over inside of it. Just like it was in my dream. Although Maximon's musculature was incomplete, he was apparently still very much mobile. And he began climbing down quickly from his cross, landing in the black pond with a heavy splash, which was then answered with an enormous whoosh as my flame found the gasoline at last, and a vast middle finger of corn and marijuana was suddenly ablaze, quickly incinerating the vegetation trapping Joseph's head and giving Maximon the biggest fuck you of his life. With a shriek, the flaming creature leapt backwards, first into the pool's depths, then springing out of them onto the only high ground now available, his flaming dying cross. His hat was still attached and burned tatters as he seemed to be collecting himself into a deep focus, looking down coldly and assessing the mess before him. He gestured at the pool and the black waters rose, spiking and undulating until all the remaining gasoline had been pushed to the sides. His fishy lips spread wide enough to almost swallow his ears, and he pointed a single, shaking finger at me. Two glistening black ropes shot forward from the pool, yanking my drone tablet away from me, crushing it, and pulling the now empty blowtorch inside the pool's inky mass. The fire was no longer a threat, but in the distance, there was a groan as drone number two's payload did what I'd hoped it would do. All that rust that I gathered... I mixed 50-50 with powdered aluminum and ignited with the magnesium from Joseph's homemade sparklers. The drone's payload of thermite burned through the steel at the top of the tower and continued to burn, despite all the water, until it sank low enough to continue its fiery descent through and out of the bottom of it. I'd stacked a present on top of that thermite bucket for the creature insulating it as best as I could while still guaranteeing dispersal, if it wasn't accidentally incinerated. My luck had apparently held, and this second payload of Great Grandpa's Addo 13 made it safely into the tank. The intense heat from the thermite reaction served to wildly agitate the water, mixing the payload as best as I could hope for and one and a half million gallons of the town's backup water supply began spraying like a fire hose out of the new hole at its base. It's the gravity, you see. That's why they place those towers so high. Water pressure. And as the flooding began, the effect on the supercharged plants was instantaneous. They began blackening as their hungry roots pulled in the chemicals great-grandpa used to crush his competition. Maximon's cross was no exception. The vines on the pole darkened as they pulled in tainted water and carried it to the flesh that had started to form on Joseph's bones. It turned gray and started flaking apart as I watched. The seed looked up at me with hatred as its head blackened once more to jet, and it formed gelatinous legs like living ink that stretched it up and away in impossible strides over the flooded grounds. Visible steamed hiss with each inky step as it fled away. 
it was going back home. And that's how the police found me, surrounded by dead cops on flooded land in front of my son's curiously mineralized bones, which appeared to be hung in effigy on a makeshift cross with his blackened, meaty skull nearby. I also had a grotesquely bloated and very dead wife at home. I didn't stand a chance, really. They still have the death penalty in Texas, and although there were a number of unanswered questions, they did have a ton of bodies, a blown-up water tower, and a half-crazy chemist to blame it on. The news loves it. The story is worldwide, and it will probably be told every Halloween for the rest of time, I imagine. If you're reading this, then, well, I figure that they've already given me my cocktail execution, and I've officially left the land of the living. I just hope that one of you believes me, and can do what I didn't have the chance to do. Find it. Fill it with rocks and cement. Better yet, explosives. Whatever you do, please destroy that well. You don't want to plant the seed that's waiting for you inside of it. <laughs>